and thank you for that song. I don't know about you, but for me, it, it took me back to whenever I was six years old. And my little feet walked the aisle, and I too responded in faith to Christ Jesus. A beautiful song and a beautiful passage that we get to study today. Now, we've been going through the book of Romans, and we've been doing it a little bit backwards, so to speak. We have been. We started at the end, and now we're looking at Romans 9 through 11. And today we'll be in Romans chapter 10, looking at verses 5 through 13. So I would like to invite you to turn with me. And your Bibles will have the words on the screen as well. But just to recap, last week we talked a little bit about how Christ can either be the stumbling stone or the cornerstone of your life. He's either the one who you're stumbling over because you're constantly trying to put your own identity, trying to find your own way to salvation, or he is the one with whom you submit your life to. He is the one of whom you build your entire life upon, submitting to him in all things. And this is part of Paul's larger argument in Romans chapters 9 through 11, because in these three chapters, Paul is struggling with the question of what is happening? Why are my fellow brothers and sisters who are Jewish, why are they rejecting the gospel? Why are they rejecting Jesus as Messiah? I've used this analogy before. Paul is walking down a road and he veers left. He accepts, he responds to Christ Jesus, but so many veer right and they reject Christ Jesus. And Paul is there to articulate in chapter 9 God's sovereignty, how he has chosen through this idea of election He's always chosen some for the benefit of others. But that the hope is that all of Israel will be saved. And as we saw in verse 4 of chapter 10, that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. This new thing that God was doing, it culminates in Christ Jesus. And then we get today to one of the most Famous passages for Christians. One of the very first verses that probably you memorized was Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. The famous Romans road of leading someone to salvation. And it got me thinking. And the question I want to pose to you, what is the purpose or the goal of salvation? This is a rhetorical question. I don't need anyone to blurt out answers. But what is the goal or the purpose of salvation? Because how we answer that question impacts how we answer the next question. To what extent does salvation impact how you live your everyday life? Because what I wanted to share with you today, church, is I think that there is a tendency for all of us, and particularly the evangelical church, I'm speaking to our own tribe and to the Baptist church, that sometimes we can mistake what truly the purpose and the goal of salvation is. We have too narrow of a view of what it means to be saved 
by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that question, what's the goal or the purpose of salvation? Perhaps you thought something, well, it's obviously, Kevin, to not go to hell. I mean, that's the first thing that so often you may think about, well, I don't want to go there. Well, it's to go to heaven when I die, and that's part of it. It's to be with Jesus. Maybe it's all the above. But what is the goal or the purpose of salvation? We're going to explore that more fully as Paul talks about it in our passage today. But then the second question, to what extent does your salvation impact how you live every day? Some of you might say a lot. Some say, it's supposed to impact me every day. I just live my life. You see, this idea of salvation is so much deeper. It so much, has so much depth to it that I think so often we settle for a very cheap version about what it means to be saved, about the gift that God has given us. For so many, it's I said a prayer, I have Jesus, I know where I'm going when I die, and I really don't have to follow Jesus right now. It doesn't impact what I'm doing. There was something I did, I checked the box, I marked it off, and you go on about your business. But you see, that's not the salvation that Paul talks about in our text today. Salvation in Christ Jesus encompasses the entire self. Salvation in Christ Jesus encompasses the entire self. And so today, church, we will explore the depth of salvation that is only found in Christ Jesus, exploring the purpose and to the extent of how it impacts how you live your life. So if you'll turn with me, begin reading in verse 5 as we look at verses 5 through 8 at this point. Paul writes, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now when we look at verses 5 through 8, they're a little bit interesting. This idea of going, who will go into heaven and who will come up from the grave. And really, what is Paul talking about? We see these two ideas of a righteousness based on a law and a righteousness based upon faith, this juxtaposition between these two ideas, something that Paul has been talking about throughout the book of Romans. He does so extensively in the first part of Romans. But what is Paul getting at in these verses? What is going on about this idea of Moses and the commandment and who will ascend, who will descend? The word is near you. What, what is he saying? The clue to what Paul is saying comes from the Old Testament. 
So often in Paul's writings, we have to know what he's referring to. And in here in this passage, he is quoting directly from the book of Deuteronomy. If you were to go to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and chapter 29 and chapter 30, you would see there at that point that the people of Israel, God is reminding them of the covenant that he has made with them. They are about to enter into the promised land and, and God is telling them, this is the covenant that I have made with you. In fact, he says in Deuteronomy 28 verse 1, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, you will experience blessings in your life. Then he goes on later to say in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, there will be curses. This idea of the covenant relationship that God entered into with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, that there are blessings and curses. If they do the law, they follow the law, they keep the Lord at the center of it, and they will experience the blessings of God. But if they don't, there will be curses. Then in Deuteronomy 29, verse 1, he says, These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make. So Paul has in mind these chapters, this idea of the law and the covenant. And as I shared last week, Paul's point in Romans 9 is that Israel has failed to believe. That so many are rejecting Israel or Jesus as the Messiah. Israel has kept her focus on the law, and they're still seeking to find righteousness through the law and works of the law. They're constantly trying to earn their way to God. And so Paul isn't combating Israel's pursuit of the law. That's what the, the Lord had given them. But what he is rebuking them on is their pursuit of the law that leads to righteousness, that they can do enough good to earn God's love, that they can earn their own salvation. As we saw last week, Christ is the end of the law. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, and that he met the full weight of the law's demands. That he is the one that fulfills the law. So we see this picture of Paul talking about in verses 5 through 8. He's juxtaposing these two ideas of, of a righteousness based upon the law and a righteousness based upon faith. And then we get to chapter 30 of Deuteronomy. And if you would, I, I would encourage you to turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 30, because there in that chapter... It's a prophecy, a prophecy that is fulfilled in Paul's eyes in the person of Jesus. And this is what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 3. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse. So from the very beginning, we knew that there would be, Israel wouldn't be able to just keep the law. They couldn't do it. As I shared last week, the law, it shows us that we are truly broken that all of us are under the law. We are all consigned to disobedience. And here we see this picture already in verse 30. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I've set before you, 
and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. This idea of exile. And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord has scattered you. So here in chapter 30, we see this prophecy of what will take place one day in the future. And we know through Israel's history of this idea of blessing and curse and eventually exile and then a return. Then all of a sudden we see these prophecies. People are beginning to wonder, when are these fulfilled? The blessing and the curse has come. What's next? We've returned back to Israel and When will there be a time when we worship with your heart and soul? When will God restore our fortunes? The last prophetic book we have in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. And there's this period in Israel's history, it's called the intertestamental period. So from about 400 BC to about the time of the birth of Christ, there were still events happening, but we don't have any prophetic books that are authoritative in God's word. But during those times, we know of events like the Maccabean Revolt. And there were religious leaders during this time, and they were trying to to understand when will Deuteronomy 30 be fulfilled? When will this time come when the blessing and curse is over, and all of a sudden, the Lord has restored your fortunes? And Paul does something that was very common in this time, that religious groups and religious leaders were saying, well, now this time has come, or has this been fulfilled? And what Paul the Apostle does is he takes Deuteronomy 30, and he puts Christ Jesus over it. He sees that this time has fulfilled, and the fortunes of the Lord have returned through Christ Jesus. So when Paul writes, In verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, but is to bring Christ down. He's quoting directly from Deuteronomy 30, verse 12. But the way Paul applies his interpretation of that verse is that no one can actually do the work to earn their way to God. There is no one who is capable and able to actually go up into heaven and to bring Christ down. The only way for that to happen is if God does that himself. God is the one who initiates salvation. God is the author of salvation. No one can go up to heaven and bring Christ down, just as no one can save themselves. He continues in verse 7, Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Again, he quotes from Deuteronomy 30, 13. And he applies this interpretation on the passage of Deuteronomy by saying, you can't actually even bring someone back from the dead. No one can except the Lord. And he has done that. 
Christ has come down and Christ has come up. It is then in verse 8, he says, but what does it say? That the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Again, Paul takes from Deuteronomy 30, 14. Do you not see the importance of us knowing scripture to see what Paul is saying? And he reinterprets this entire section seen through the work of Christ. The word of God. The ring a bell of John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with Christ. Christ is the culmination of the law. That's something that has happened that can't unhappen. And something that has happened that has never happened before. And Paul's response to this new thing that has happened, that salvation has come, where God sent his son into the world and where God raised his son to life, that no one can do this. This is God's prerogative. There is a proper response to this new thing that has taken place. When I was at WSU, Washington State University, as a college pastor, one of the very first students that came to know the Lord in my time up there was a young man, and we got to know him. He came to some of our events and very open to, to the Christian faith, but didn't have any type of faith background. But over time, we kind of went on a trip together at the beginning of the semester. We had some conversations, and then we were able to sit down, and, and I was able to articulate to him the beauty of the gospel and all that God was doing in the world. And how we were in need of a savior at that point. And after sitting there talking to him for, for probably wasn't very long, but what seemed like an eternity. I asked him, what are your thoughts to this? About God's work in the world through Jesus Christ and, and how he's done something new for us. And after I thought I did this amazing job of, you know, he, here's this explanation, this understanding. And he just looks at me. He says, Kevin, I want that. I want that. I want salvation. I want to be saved. What do I have to do to experience all that God has done? This new thing of God sending his son and God raising his son. Of bringing new life into the world. What do I have to do to experience that? And it's rather simple, isn't it? This amazing thing that God has done this new thing that Paul reinterprets through Christ Jesus, fulfilling the law, taking the law upon himself, the true chosen Israel one. Paul then says that there is a response, a response that we must all have, a response to what God has done of sending his son and raising his son. As verse 9 in our text says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 
For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We see the very first step of Paul's response of what it means to be saved, to experience, to take upon what God has already done for us, is to confess with your mouth and to believe in one's heart. To believe with your entire being that Jesus is Lord. Now this isn't a two-step process of confession and then belief, but confession is just a manifestation of believing. It's something that we do that comes out of what we believe in our hearts. It's, a, it's really one thing that Paul is talking about. That when you confess, you are confessing what you believe with your entire self, that Jesus is Lord. It becomes an identity marker. At one point, for those in Israel, the identity marker was circumcision. That's what separated them. It was an outward expression of, of, these are the people of God. But what Paul is saying, once you confess and you believe that there is a new identity marker because there is a new Lord of your life. And even for those who are Gentiles, that Caesar was often seen as Lord, that your allegiance was no longer to Caesar, but to Jesus. Because he alone is Lord. He talks about there that for with the heart one believes and is justified. Something we'll get to in just a moment, but Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ when we respond in faith to what he has done, that we have peace with God. We are made right before God. He doesn't see us, but he sees the blood of Christ. And then in verse 12, one that we could easily skip over, but in Paul's argument as he's articulating in the book of Romans is how are Jew and Gentile to be reconciled to one another? That the gospel isn't just for Israel, but also for Gentiles. And he says, there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. For all have been consigned to disobedience. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned. And it is only through Christ Jesus that we experience salvation. There is no other way. Then it says, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. The assurance, the promise that we have, that when we respond in faith, when we cry out, that we can trust the Lord will make good on his promise. That all who call upon him, who confess and believe, will be saved. Salvation in Christ Jesus, it encompasses the entire self. Salvation is not just a prayer that you pray to get you into heaven. And while heaven is a part of God's plan of salvation, I need to let you know a secret. It's not the goal of salvation. 
Did you hear me, church? Heaven is received the goal of salvation. You see, we have to broaden our understanding of what salvation means. What does salvation encompass? And the first thing that salvation encompasses is justification. Being made right with God. So I just read from Romans 5, 1. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our, our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 talks about us being reconciled to God. God reconciled the world to himself. Ephesians 1, 7 speaks of this as well. But that God did something that we could not do ourselves. That we were separated, we were sinful. And God took it upon himself to step down into our world. To die a death on the cross for your sins and my sins. That we've been justified by God. We've been made right with God through Christ Jesus. But the second part of salvation is it encompasses sanctification. Or in other words, growing in community. You see, when you receive, when you respond to what Christ has already done for you, when you respond, when you confess and believe, at that point you begin a journey where the Spirit comes and dwells within you. Because the beautiful thing about the gospel is that the Lord always takes you where you are. He doesn't want you to, to get good enough to come to church. He doesn't want you to get your life in order before you respond to Him. He takes you as you are. He takes you where you are. But the beautiful thing is that He doesn't ever leave us where we are. Can I get an amen with that? Because if you haven't been changed by the Spirit, then do you truly believe? If your life hasn't changed, if you haven't seen the fruit growing in your life of the Spirit working, and yes, we all go through deserts, we all go through dry times. We go through mountains and valleys and forests. Whatever the season you may be going through, that the Lord will be with you. But he wants you to grow and to change, and it's all his work. That we make ourselves available to your. And the way we grow, church, is through community. You can't be an island unto yourself. That the way the process of transformation takes place isn't in isolation. You actually have to be around to be connected to fellow believers, people to encourage you, to admonish you. Because something I say often that Jesus may be in your hearts, but Grandpa is in your bones, as Pete Scazzaro says. And it's a true statement that I just, I resonate with so much. That you may be a believer, but, but we've been shaped by so much of our past. But God wants to transform all of those things, to take those upon himself. The last thing that we see in Scripture is for you to be a, a one-year-old Christian 50 times over. That if you've been a believer for 60 years, you can't just be a one-year-old Christian. And unfortunately, there's not an easy button in the process of sanctification, in the process of spiritual transformation. 
but it's through the power of the Spirit and being in community with others because that is who God is, the triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit in community together. We can't follow Christ apart from others. I think now more than ever, Christians need community. Now, I'm not one to to get into this much, but I think this past year, there's a tendency because of this pandemic for people to not prioritize church, to not prioritize the gathering of believers. But there is something, something that we have to have in order for us to pursue Christ, in order for us to truly experience the gift of salvation that God intends for us. And the third part of salvation is glorification, longing for this future hope that we can't obtain perfection on this side of life, that we can be transformed, we can continue to grow and become more and more like Christ every day. Or so we hope. We still bear the mark of sin in this world, but, but one day in God's future kingdom, we will be with all the redeemed, worshiping the chosen one, the Lamb of God. You see, that's salvation's ultimate goal. It's not for us to get to some place, to some destination. Not even really to save yourself, although that's part of it. But when we respond in faith to the gospel, we are caught up into God's redeeming activity in the world. That our story becomes a part of God's story. Where it's no longer about me, but about Christ Jesus. And that will culminate in the new heaven and the new earth, as the book of Revelation speaks to. Where all are worshiping and glorifying the risen Lamb. Where there will be no more tears and no more death and no more pain. That is the goal of salvation. That one day we will glorify the Lord with all the redeemed. And every tongue will confess and every knee will bow before him. And furthermore, God's plan for the world, to the extent that it impacts you, that your salvation impacts how you live every day, that God has ushered in his kingdom. When he came to this world, when he was born, but when he began his ministry, as the gospel of Mark says in Mark 1, 14, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Jesus inaugurated his kingdom, the very new thing that he was doing that culminates in his death and resurrection. He tells those disciples who are there looking at him after he'd been risen from the grave, rose from the grave. And those disciples are there. They're with him. And as he ascends into heaven, he says, I will return. Then the very book of Acts is the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, continuing 
this mission of what God has done in the world. They have a commission. They get to continue to fulfill the task that Jesus has entrusted them to. To continue the work until he returns. To take salvation. The good news. That's for both Jew and Gentile. That's for all of the world. But you have a part to play. You see, church, that's what we're going to explore next week. That we have a part to play. But for today, salvation is a gift. It's more than a destination. It's more than saying a prayer. Salvation, it encompasses your entire self of putting your faith in Christ Jesus, allowing him to come in and to change your life and to live every day for him. Because once you believe, your life is not about you, but about Jesus and making his name known. Let us pray. Father, we come before you. God, I ask in this time, that you open up our hearts and our ears to you. God, if there are some here today who don't know you as Lord and Savior of their life, they've never confessed, they've never believed, God, I pray that they will be able to, to come forward today. God, if you're stirring in their hearts or knocking at the door, whatever it is, Father, if you are drawing them to yourself. I pray, Lord, that they respond in faith today. God, I pray too also for those who may be feeling at this point that they haven't seen the fruit in their life, they haven't seen the transformation in their life. They walked the aisle at one point, but they haven't really lived into that gift, that salvation that you offered them. I pray, Father, that in this moment that you help them see that you love them, that your mercies are new every day, that you forgive as far as the east is from the west. Where they have fallen short, Father, let there be no shame. Because at the foot of the cross, there is forgiveness, there is grace, there is mercy. So God, in this moment that you renew in their hearts what it truly means to be saved, what it means to be redeemed. Thank you for the gift of salvation. It's a gift to the world. We pray these things in your son's name.